Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Jeff, if you still haven't worked that out, and this is your first time meeting me. Um, I'm very excited to be here to wrap up Ecclesiastes for you. Um, I think it is a fantastic book. It is very challenging, um, so I am also a little bit, uh, little bit nervous about this. Uh, so before we begin, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes, as CCMA has worked through this over the last couple of weeks. As we wrap up this series, Lord, be with us. Help us to make sense of the challenges in this book, but for us to be, to be able to walk away encouraged, and that we can be excited for what this book has in store for us. Father, uh, make my words clear that you would speak through me, uh, that all of us who hear this, even myself, myself included especially, that these words will change us, will affect our hearts, and that we would walk away encouraged with our hearts transformed. So we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Something about me is that I really enjoy watching movies. Almost any type of movie I will enjoy, provided there is a relatively coherent story, I will enjoy it. But in particular, I really like movies that wow you. Movies that stay with you when you walk out from after watching it. One of my favorite filmmakers is Christopher Nolan. I think his movies do a really good job of this, whether it's The Prestige, Inception, Interstellar, or more recently, Tenet. If you've seen any of these movies, you know what I mean. If you haven't, I highly recommend you try one of those out. If you really want to walk away with your mind melted, I would say choose Inception or choose Tenet. Now, as much as I love movies like this, movies that keep you thinking afterwards, there's a bit of a problem. I'm not the best at fully understanding a movie. The number of times I've walked out after a great movie and been like, wow, I really enjoyed that. It was all about this. And my friend has gone, no, you missed the whole point. It's about this. And I go, oh. And so because of this, I've gone into a habit of looking up a movie afterwards. I'll go home. I'll go to Wikipedia, read the summary, and be like, yep, okay, I got the events. Then I'll go and read some article about the themes, or I'll watch someone's video about it. And it's fun to me. It's fun to think about what I thought versus what someone else thought. It's good to have these things to consider, to be able to talk about these things with other people. And that's precisely why I'm also excited to wrap up Ecclesiastes, because I think we get to do something very similar. Throughout the whole of Ecclesiastes, we've mostly been reading the writings of the teacher. The teacher as he's set out to study all that is under the heavens. We've followed him as he's described his different experiences and the conclusions he's been arriving at. And just like that, the book of Ecclesiastes could end, could end with the last of the teacher's words. But instead, we find that the author of Ecclesiastes, he adds a little ending his own little epilogue. Just as he opened the book by introducing the teacher, he closes the book with his thoughts. And so that's what we'll look at today. The author begins his thoughts by summarizing who the teacher was. This is in verses 9 to 10. Not only was the teacher wise, 
but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words and what he wrote was upright and true. It should come as no surprise that the teacher is described as wise. It's why we consider the book of Ecclesiastes wisdom literature. The book is filled with wisdoms. Wisdom, there are many wise sayings. This book is how the teacher imparts his knowledge to people. And as the author wrote, the teacher pondered, searched out, set in order many proverbs, and searched to find just the right words. And how does the author conclude this? Well, what the teacher wrote was upright and true. This is assuring, but challenging. It's good to know that the author who put this book together, he vouches for the teacher, vouches for who the teacher is and what he's written. But it's challenging because some of what the teacher has written isn't the most encouraging. For example, in Ecclesiastes chapter two, this is what the teacher says regarding pleasure. Verse 10. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all of my labor, and this was a reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. And this is what the teacher says specifically about toil. Verse 17, so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. No matter what the teacher considered, he seemed to have mostly come to the conclusion that it is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Chasing pleasure, working hard, it's all meaningless. It's not what we want to hear, yet, the author tells us that these words are upright and true. So what do we make of all this? Do we just accept that everything is meaningless? Do we live our lives just existing because nothing's worth it? It's all meaningless? Well, before we land there, I think we need to keep reading. Because this is the next thing that the author says in verses 11 to 12. The words of the wise are like goads. They collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. The author starts to think about words of the wise, of wisdom. He says two things about them. They are like goads, and that of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. These points start to help us to understand 
what we do with these challenging and confronting words. Firstly, for those who are unfamiliar with what a goat is, it's a stick used by a shepherd. But specifically, it has a sharp point at the end and they use it to prod cattle, to guide them. And I think this is what the author is trying to say. The words of the wise guide us. They guide, but they're not rules or commands of how we are to live our life. To put it in, the diff- in a different way, the words of the wise are a guide, but not, they're not the tracks of the roller coaster that is life. And we'll come back to this. But for now, I want to address the next thing. The author says that of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Students, it's time to rejoice. You now have a reason to tell people that you shouldn't study so hard anymore. It says so in the Bible. Much study wearies the body. But in all seriousness, the author is referring to wisdom, to what the teacher has written. Having read the book of Ecclesiastes, you could study it, analyze it, explore it, meditate on it, write on it. You could do this forever. There is no end to it. It would wear you out. You could consider what the teacher has written in Ecclesiastes 2 as he considers wisdom. But then you'd have to consider what he says in chapters 9 and 10. You would go round and around and you'd never find a conclusion. So the author warns us of this. To not be consumed with sitting there thinking about the words the teacher has written. They are simply goads. They are guides. The author isn't telling us to ignore these words, but to have balance. We allow the words of Ecclesiastes to guide us, but we don't cling to them. We don't sit in them and allow them to consume our lives. And this is where we end up at the conclusion. The last two verses of Ecclesiastes. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the duty of all mankind. Having read and put together all that the teacher has written, the author concludes that in the end, our duty, as he calls it, is to fear God and to keep his commandments. That's what the author of Ecclesiastes wants us to walk away with, to fear God. Before we go any further, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page about fearing God, because it's not the typical fear we talk about. Uh, Back in July this year, I had the chance to go to New Zealand with my family. And as part of this trip, we got to see the Milford Sound on the southern island of New Zealand. It's basically this big stretch of water that leads out to the ocean. But it's surrounded on both sides by these beautiful towering cliffs much like the fjords you might see in Norway. We got on a short cruise uh, on the Milford Sound, and it took us out to the ocean and back. And as part of this cruise, we got to get up really close to the Stirling Falls. It's a permanent waterfall 
in the Milford Sound, and it is 155 meters high. Now, I'm a bit bad at judging distances, but I'd say we're about maybe 50 meters, maybe a bit more out from this waterfall. And even at that distance, it is a sight to behold. See, not only could you see the ripples and the waves that are formed when the water hits the surface, but you could actually feel the force at which the water came down. Partly because there was water spraying everywhere, but you could feel almost this pressure coming out from the waterfall. And that's not to mention the sound of the roar of this waterfall. And as I looked out at this, it was very clear to me that as beautiful as it was, if I were to stand directly under that waterfall, I would not be here to tell you about it. I was genuinely awestruck seeing this waterfall. It was incredible and majestic. I had this awe when I looked at it, but also almost a level of fear. It wasn't a fear that made me run away. It wasn't a fear that made me want to find the captain and say, hey, let's get out of here. But it came out of awe and respect. I understood that the waterfall was not something to mess with, not something to play with. I wasn't scared of it. I wanted to stand there and to appreciate it. But I knew that if I got too close, it would not be good. I respected the force and the power of the water that came crashing down from 155 meters. That experience is what I use to try and describe the fear of God. The fear the author describes in Ecclesiastes is not based in terror or being scared. It's not fear that makes you want to hide and run away, but rather it comes from awe from respect, from reverence. That's the fear we're to have of God. That's the conclusion that the author arrives at as he collects what the teacher has written. So to fear God in this right way, fear that comes from awe, respect, reverence, I think that's the key to better understanding what the teacher has written to understanding the whole of Ecclesiastes. See, when we fear God, it puts things into perspective. Part of fearing God is realizing who God is. He's the creator of the universe. Not just the universe, but us. We are his creation, and we are living in his creation. And that's an incredibly humbling thing to know. We're not the creator. We're not the controllers and masters of this world, of our lives. God is. We are but creation in his creation. But knowing this also provides us with a perspective that the teacher has touched on a couple of times. See, there's a couple of moments in Ecclesiastes where the teacher writes something along the lines of this. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? That one's Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 24 to 25. Or this is what the teacher says in chapter 8, verse 15. 
So I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. See, the perspective is that life, the enjoyment of life, it's a gift from God. It's a gift from the creator of the universe, from the giver of life. God has given us life, and so we are to enjoy it. But it's not enjoyment as we see fit. It's enjoyment of life that comes from knowing our place in creation. It's enjoyment of life that comes from recognizing God as the creator of this creation. It's enjoyment of life that comes from fearing God. Going back to what the teacher has written, he found that even when he refused his heart no pleasure, everything was meaningless. Enjoyment of life grounded in seeking pleasure for ourselves that is meaningless. That's not the enjoyment we're talking about. Enjoyment of life that comes from fearing God, that isn't meaningless. And so this is where I think we can pull the whole book of Ecclesiastes together, the, conclusion, the concluding thoughts of the author. See, what the teacher has written is upright and true. But if we take it to be absolute and evase value, it's confronting, it's confusing. And so the author reminds us that these words are like goads. They guide us. They're not hard rules. We allow them to guide us. And we shouldn't devote our whole life to studying them, to allow them to consume us, because in the end, that gets us nowhere. Instead, knowing all this, we approach life with the attitude of fearing God. Because as we do so, we're able to take what the teacher has written to allow these truths found in there to guide us as we seek to live our lives knowing who we are, knowing who we are as the created in the creator's creation. Basically, we live our lives with the primary goal of being in right relationship with God. And as we do that, we learn from what the teacher has written. Even though the teachers found that pleasure, wisdom, toil, wealth, they're all meaningless, they're only meaningless when they're pursued as the be-all, end-all. In fact, I think the teacher had it written really well in chapter 5. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The love of money, the love of wealth, it never ends. It consumes you. That's not to say that having money or wealth is bad. If God has blessed you with that, praise him and thank him for that. But when money and wealth become what you pursue, when they become the love of your life, when it takes over your life, that's when the words of the teacher ring true. That is meaningless. And so that's how I think the teacher's words can guide us. We read his words. We learn from them. We recognize what he's studied and what he's saying. 
But we do so remembering that ultimately, our duty, our primary goal is to fear God and follow his commandments. And so now I think it's good for us to ask ourselves, what does it look like to fear God in our lives today? How can we learn from the writings of the teacher and allow his wisdom to guide us? Well, to begin with, do you fear God? Is the fear you have for God reverential fear? Fear that is out of respect and awe for who God is. Maybe you don't have that fear because you don't know God. You haven't had a chance to find out more about just who God is. And so you don't have that fear. Well, a great place to start is actually Jesus. Colossians 1.15 tells us the Son, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Jesus, who lived on this earth, walked on it, died and was resurrected. He is the image of the invisible God. We have accounts of his life in the gospel. The life of the one who is described as the image of the invisible God. The gospels paint a picture of who Jesus is and therefore a picture of who God is. In fact, just related to this, I believe Jesus is even more reason to fear and to have awe for God because Jesus gives us a chance to approach God, to draw near to him and to have right relationship with God. Through Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, being sent as God's only son to die for our sins, that we would have forgiveness and be reconciled to God, God did that, the creator. To put this in the image of that waterfall I saw, it's like there is a way for me to get closer to the waterfall, to experience, to stand below it and to not die. God has enabled that through Jesus. He's enabled us to draw closer to him. He's offered us a way to know him personally. That's who Jesus is. That's what God has done. And if that doesn't give you more awe of just who God is, I don't know what will. So if you have yet to know God or yet to fear God in the right way, I encourage you to try and do so. Speak to someone you trust. Ask them. Ask them to read the Bible with you, to spend time in scripture and prayer that you might discover just who God truly is. For those who do fear God, who do have relationship with God, what does it look like to learn from the teacher? Well, I think a good way to start is actually the enjoyment of life. Remembering that life and the enjoyment of it is a gift from God. When we know that, we can be comforted that life isn't completely meaningless. This time, let me read from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. Now, once again, 
I'm not encouraging you to live a life of enjoyment based, based in your own pleasure, to not live a hedonistic lifestyle, seeking enjoyment just for yourself. But I think that there is a way to enjoy life, life as a gift from God and to do so out of reverential fear for him. When I read the words, eat, drink, and find satisfaction in all their toil, I think of a farmer, especially from the time of the Bible. They were probably someone that lived off their land. They grew produce. Maybe they had animals that they would eat. It's a clear picture of eating, drinking, and finding satisfaction in their toil. They ate what they worked hard to produce. And you could do that today if you want. You could set up a garden. You could move to a farm. But that might not be achievable for everyone. So what would it look like for others? Well, in particular, I want to focus on the idea of finding satisfaction in our toil. I think for most people, work is probably not something they think of when they think of enjoying life. Or not even enjoyment, but even finding satisfaction in work. Now, when I say work, I talk about adult working life, but I think it also includes study. But my hunch is that most people don't wake up looking forward to work, thinking that they are going to have the most satisfying day of their life. For many people, work is a necessity. They might not hate it, but they also don't find satisfaction or enjoyment in it. It's something you have to do. It's something that's required so that you can live. You work so that you have income, so that you can buy things and not die. So then, how could anyone possibly find satisfaction from sitting in front of an Excel spreadsheet going over thousands of cells of numbers? Well, maybe it's not finding satisfaction in what you do in and of itself, but from the way you conduct yourself at work. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. We can begin by not working for our bosses or our superiors or studying for ourselves or our teachers, but doing all that for God. Another aspect could be the way that we conduct ourselves at work, our character. Maybe we can find satisfaction in our toil. Maybe we can find satisfaction in our toil, not in the toil itself, but the way that we are able to witness Christ. Maybe you have chances to tell people at work about Jesus and your faith. Maybe you don't. But while at work, you are a representative of Christ. Yes, you're a representative of Christ at any other point in the day, but you are still so at work. And in particular, for the people around you at work, you may be the only Christian they know. You might be the only chance they have at knowing who God is. And so maybe the satisfaction you find in your toil is because you've been a true and accurate representation of Christ. You've accurately reflected who God is, the God whom you fear. 
that can be a way to find satisfaction in your toil. And for those odd people who might actually enjoy their work and what they do, good for you, praise God. Uh, however, that's not an excuse to become swallowed up by your work. It's not an excuse for you to dive headfirst and only do your work. This is where, again, the words of the teacher can guide us. If we focus on toil and work and do that for toil's sake, it ends up meaningless. And that's just thinking about toil or work. There are all the other aspects of life that the teacher considered. But ultimately, it comes back to fearing God. To living your life in a way that is out of fear for him, of awe, of respect, of knowing who we are in relation to the creator, being humble in his creation, finding out how that works, allowing what the teacher has written to guide us. But it comes down to our heart, fearing God and knowing him, having that right relationship with him. So to wrap this up, Ecclesiastes is a fantastic book. I think it's able to speak to ways that is, speak to people in a way that is very relatable, one that is not as easily found in other parts of scripture. But it's challenging. It's challenging to be told that everything is meaningless, that pleasure, toil, wealth, wisdom, everything, that's all meaningless. But it's only meaningless when we consider those things alone. When we remember and when we know that our duty is to fear God, to fear him and to enjoy the gift of life, the gift he has given us, maybe everything isn't so meaningless. So what I want to leave you today with is an, an encouragement. Take time to read through Ecclesiastes. Seriously, make reading it a part of your daily devotions with God this week, this month. Read through it from start to finish. And as you read it, carefully consider what the teacher says. Consider it and ask the Lord to show you, to show you how you can fear him and to live your life with the wisdom found in Ecclesiastes. That you would live a life fearing him. And that way, you won't say meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for Jesus as a way for us to come to know you, to know you personally, that as we do so, we can enjoy the gift of life, that life isn't meaningless, that everything isn't meaningless when it's in you. Father, help us to be humble, to know who we are and who you are, that we can continue to fear you and to live life with purpose, to live life worshipping you and to find meaning in what we do, to find meaning in you as we go about our lives. Thank you that everything isn't meaningless. We pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you guys want to stand up and join us in song?
Jesus be the center of your church. Jesus be the center of the church. And every knee will bow, and every tongue shall confess you, Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, 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 from my heart to the heavens, Jesus be the center. It's all about you. Yes, it's all about you. From my heart to the heavens, Jesus be the center. It's all about you. Yes, it's all pray for our deacons. We pray for God's wisdom, pray for your wisdom and guidance to be upon them as they use Reach Australia's training material to continue their vision planning for our church next year. Lord, we also pray for the spiritual growth of our church, this community. May we be a church that is transformed by you and that we can reflect your image in our daily lives. May we become a church that is hungry for more of you and may we grow a true and deep love of your word and prayer. Lord, we pray for all that's happening in Gaza. We pray for those who are injured, those who are lost loved ones, and the innocent. God, we pray that the decision makers will hear your voice and make wise decisions and bring peace in the midst of these troubling times. May your kingdom come and your will be done. And Lord, we pray as we approach Christmas that we can share your love, hope, and the joy of Christ to those around us who don't know you. May, it serve, may we be a powerful witness to our family and friends. In Jesus' name. Let's continue our prayer by saying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation from deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, the glory, and forever and ever. Amen. 
Alright, well, we'll just sing one more song. Um, yeah, just thinking about uh, Jeffrey's encouragement and um, I guess all the wonderful things that God gives us, like work and play and toil and stresses, I guess. But like, um, yeah, we just thank God for all the privileges that we do have, um, that we can live in this great country and, and work and, and play um, all in good time. So, yeah, join us in the song as we thank God for everything that he is for us and all that he does.
not the one. I am free. Oh, I am free. Come on, sing it out like you mean it. 